because you you couldn't withhold yourself because you were so excited. You were like a you know a you know a kid in the candy. You story, were like yeah. Jimmy Swaggart preaching. You know, you just had to jump out and say, it. "More like a kid okay, in a well, like a like a kid in a Lego okay. store, more like." Hello, and welcome to another self-actualizing but not self-aggrandizing episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Uh, we have been going a number of different issues over the course of, at this point, 40-some episodes, uh, looking at uh, how Ken and I made our way, in his case, from being a Baptist pastor, in my case, from being an underground evangelical rock and roller, to the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there are a lot of questions related to that. And lately, we've been focusing on the Eucharist and more on that in just a moment. But in the meantime, uh, if you are enjoying what you're watching and hearing, then please do click subscribe and uh, share this with others. And if you want to get into the real discussions, please come visit us at the Coming Home Network online community, chnetwork.org. Click connect and you can get in there. That's where we actually have the good conversations uh, as opposed to in the YouTube comments where things get just real nasty real fast. So, although Ken, they really haven't, they, re- they really haven't. But you know what? I thought you were going to come up with an adjective every week to describe the show. I didn't know it was going to be an adjectival phrase that would get longer and longer and longer. Well, you know, we mix it up. Mix it up, Ken. Okay. Got to see if people are actually paying attention. Now, I know for this week, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, this is. We're at what? Um, part seven on the Eucharist. And mm-hmm. in the past, when we've talked about sola fide and sola scriptura, um, we've kind of had an episode in the middle there that sort of causes us to, you know, kind of refresh and catch up on some of the things that we've talked about so mm-hmm. far as we move ahead. And we're doing a little bit of that today. Yes. Yeah. In fact, well, this series is going to be shorter than those series were. But yeah, what we've been doing here is you and I've been telling the story of how we came to embrace the Catholic teaching. And this involved two primary elements, you know, coming to accept the idea of the Eucharist as a sacrificial meal, which was completely, not, you know, craziness from, at least from my background as a Baptist. And then secondly, coming to, to understand and embrace the Eucharist as real presence, as Christ truly there. And so we have been hitting at these themes from a number of different angles, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so what I wanted to do this week and next week is sum up where we've come and, and try to sum it up as clearly as I can. Um, and so today, the Eucharist as a sacrificial meal, and then next week, we'll focus on the real presence. And I want to attempt to do this in story form, Matt, as we've done before. And so um, I want to outline this as basic, as the basic steps as they unfolded for me. And now there are a million permutations on this thing and little bits of knowledge that came in here and there, but I, but I think I can simplify and summarize it in a, a series of steps, and that's what I want to do here today, okay? Okay, here's step one. Uh, step one, Matt, was reading the early church fathers, which we've mentioned a number of times. But this is step one for me, reading the early church fathers and historians of the early church and becoming convinced that this is how the early Christians understood the Eucharist, and this is how Christianity understood the Eucharist for the first 1,500 years of its existence. That is, 
in sacrificial terms. Not just the Roman Catholic Church of the West, but the Eastern Church, Eastern Catholic Churches, and then later the Orthodox Church. I'm talking about Christianity in general. I came to, I became convinced, understood the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. Now, we can only refer to a few of the fathers this time around. We did much more when we were hitting on it before, but I'll focus on three of the very earliest to make the impact on this. First of all, the Didache, which simply means the teaching or the, the instruction. It's the earliest document that we have describing Christian worship. Some scholars date it as early as 50 AD. Could be later, but some are willing to date it that early, during the time of the apostles. And this is what we read in the Didache. Assemble on the Lord's Day and break bread and offer the Eucharist. Right there, coming right out of the chute, we have the word offer, and offer the Eucharist. But first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be pure. Anyone who has a difference with his fellow is not to take part until he has been reconciled so as to avoid profaning the sacrifice. For this is the offering of which the Lord said, quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 11 and 14, everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of nations. Okay. Another very important early witness is St. Clement of Rome. Now, to give a little more background on him, Irenaeus lists Clement as the fourth bishop of Rome, and having learned his faith from St. Peter and St. Paul. According to Tertullian, St. Peter himself consecrated Clement as the bishop of Rome, the fourth bishop of Rome. So Clement's letter to the church of Corinth is very early, very early document. It's usually dated around 70 or 80 AD. So again, during the time of at least some of the apostles, this is very early. And this is what Clement says, our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily, what a strange word, how to say holy, holy as an adverb, who blamelessly and holily have offered the sacrifices. Blessed are those presbyters who have finished their course and who have obtained a fruitful and perfect release. And then one more, from St. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch in Syria. And yes, th this is the same Antioch that we read about all the way through the book of Acts. Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John himself, and tradition is that he was installed as bishop by the Apostles Peter and Paul, who, again, read the book of Acts. They were both in Antioch uh, a number of times. Written around 107 to 110 AD, when Ignatius was an old man and about to die, the, his about to hand his life over as a martyr in Rome. Very early, this is what he says: "Take heed then to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to show forth the unity of His blood. One altar, there it is. One altar, as there is one bishop, along with the presbytery and deacons." And I could go on quoting, as I've said before, Matt, from Justin Martyr and Irenaeus in the second century, from Cyprian, Tertullian in the third century, from Cyril, Ambrose, Augustine, and so many more in the fourth century, and, and, and not even to mention the fifth century, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, all the way up to the time of the Reformation, really. All of them understand the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. It's offered on an altar. It's a sacrificial meal. And this was the first step for me. This had tremendous impact 
just realizing that whether I was looking at the church in the West or the East, whether it was the Coptic church down in Egypt, whatever, this is how Christianity conceived of the Eucharist really all the way up until the time of the of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, what you're putting together there, this picture of them talking about the Eucharist as sacrifice, you know, if you isolated it out and just said, well, this is, you know, evidence that the earliest Christians fell away as soon as the last apostle died, well, this is kind of hard to reconcile because the apostles are alive uh, <laughs> when some of yes. this stuff is being written. <laughs> so you, you have that, but you also have, and, and this is something that you know, I think is not hard to do. Uh, you have continuity with the scriptures, as you're about to point out. This is not something that is just a complete yeah. break with and a and a complete total different direction than what we read in the New Testament at all. Yeah, and that's that's step two. Step one was the fathers, and that's the point I wanted to make there. Step two for me then was racing from the fathers. What I was reading and being stunned, you know, to realize racing from that back to the scriptures um, to examine, first of all, uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, where we have the longest sustained discussion of, of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist in all of the New Testament epistles, okay? And finding evidence there that St. Paul also thought of the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. Now, one of the issues that Paul was dealing with in the church in Corinth, as you know, was the question of whether it was allowable, whether it was okay were Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed on the pagan altars of Corinth and then sold in the marketplace. And we could have a discussion of that, but that's not the point. That's not the important point. The important point here is how Paul, in, the, in this passage, very naturally contrasts the Eucharist with both the Old Testament sacrifices being made in the Jewish temple and the sacrifices being made on pagan altars. He compares and he contrasts them as though they are of a similar nature, meaning sacrificial. Reading from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 18, Consider the practice of Israel, Paul writes. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? And I want to comment here. The Greek word that Paul uses here for partners is the, is the word koinonia, which means to share in, to participate in, to be a partner in, okay? He says, are not, are not those who eat the sacrifices, referring to the Old Testament Jewish sacrifices, partners in the altar? Now what pagans sacrifice, they, he, he switches over to pagans, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Okay, so he's got the he's got the table of the Old Testament Jewish sacrifices, he's got the table of the demons, he's got the table of the Lord in his mind. Now, just immediately prior to this, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Paul had said that when we eat the bread and drink the cup of the Eucharist, we share in the body and blood of Christ. And he used the same Greek word, koinonia. So he, he's got on his mind sharing in the Old Testament sacrifices, sharing in the pagan sacrifices, which are actually made to demons, or sharing in the Lord's Supper. Well, as a Baptist, of course, I didn't think of the Lord's Supper in sacrificial terms at all. I mean, it was a meal of remembrance, pure and simple. It had nothing whatsoever to do with altars, nothing to do with sacrifices, nothing to do certainly with eating from an altar or eating a sacrificial meal. But here's Paul 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, very naturally talking about the Old Testament Jewish sacrifices, the pagan sacrifices in Corinth, and contrasting the Lord's Supper with them. It's as though he's saying, you know, when we eat from the altar in the temple, we share in that altar. When we eat from the altar of demons, we're sharing in that. And when we eat from the Eucharist, we are sharing in the body and blood of Christ. Paul clearly thought of the Eucharist in sacrificial terms. Yeah, it's wild. I, I'm just going back through and rereading this to, to to try and remind myself of what it was that was mm-hmm. going through my head as I was reading this passage from, you know, because I Bible quizzed on First and Second Corinthians. I mean, I have like... I have like trophies back here that I won from being really good at memorizing First and Second Corinthians, and when you read through uh, again um, and see this from a Catholic perspective, this sort of thing leaps on the page. So as I was, you know, saying in a previous uh-huh. episode, yeah. it was really hard. It's it's really hard for me now to kind of think about what I was thinking. I do um, remember hearing uh, stuff about how people use the passage about don't eat meat sacrificed to idols in front of other people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the the best interpretation that I ever got was, well, you know, it's OK for you to have a couple of beers, but not around people who might be not able to handle beers. Right. Like mm-hmm. this. Those are the, the ways that we kind of understood it. And I'm, I'm trying to think of how I would have processed this. I wouldn't have thought that. Paul was talking about a Eucharistic sacrifice. First of all, the Eucharist wouldn't have been in my vocabulary because the word Eucharist is not. That's yeah, not how things are translated here, but just understanding, like, can you be a person who goes to church and also be a person who goes to the bars on Saturday night? That's like the best kind of way I would have understood it because I didn't have this concept that what Paul's talking about here is a sacrifice. Well, you know, you Methodists, you know, it's just the way you guys are. I, I guess so. It's the way you are. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll do okay. a, a, an episode on the okay. errors of my Methodism later. Yes. The errors Actually, of Methodism. That's next. Uh, that'll be, be a like very short episode, episode series. Okay. So step one for me is, is this uh, crisis, really, of facing the reality of early church history and the belief of uh, and the beliefs of Christians for fifteen hundred years. Second one was then coming to this passage in Paul, and and and, and all I want to say is j- just noting that he was able to think of the Eucharist in sacrificial terms, comparing it, contrasting it with the old covenant sacrifices and whatnot. Okay. Step three is a big one. Step three was coming to see the Eucharist as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover memorial celebration. Okay. If the Old Testament Passover memorial celebration that was celebrated every year in memory of Passover, if it was a sacrificial meal, which it was, that is the type. That is the shadow. And so coming to see that the Eucharist is the fulfillment of that type and shadow bends one, you know, in, in the direction of thinking, well, does that mean the Eucharist is a sacrifice as well? Okay. As it, it, there's a lot to say here. As you and I looked at this in more detail a few weeks back when we looked at the new, the new um, Passover, the Passover, which launched the old covenant Exodus out of Egypt, was a sacrificial meal. No doubt about that. You kill the lamb. You, you know, you spread the blood over the doorposts and the lentils, you go inside, you have this sacrificial meal, you eat it, okay? The Passover was a sacrificial meal, but so also was the Passover memorial that was celebrated every year. It wasn't just a dinner in memory, it was a sacrificial meal in memory, commemorating, okay? Well, in the same way, 
The Last Supper, which took place on the night of the Passover, was a sacrificial meal. And here's the thing. When we listen carefully, which we're going to do now, when we listen carefully to the words that Jesus used to institute the Eucharist, I think we can see that the Eucharist is also being presented as though it will be a sacrificial meal. And a, I would have believed sacrifice. That, yeah, I would have believed that the that the um the sacrifice of Christ on the cross replaced all sacrifice. I would not have thought that Jesus is using the last supper as a way to you know forever memorialize in a very concrete way everything that was about to happen. Um that's that's not what I would have thought of. Yeah, and we're going to come back to that in our closing section of this um you know the idea that it all is in the cross, you know? Right. So, yeah. So let me roll in. Um, I want to make four points under this one, okay, about the Eucharist and about the Last Supper. Four points to flesh this out. The first point is this, and this is something everyone would agree with. There's no issue. The words of Jesus at the Last Supper are the words of one offering a sacrifice. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, he's not just saying, um, well, he's not just saying, this is my body, this is my blood. He, he, he's saying, this is my body which is given for you in sacrifice. This is my blood, which is poured out for you in sacrifice. This is the language of sacrifice. In fact, in Matthew's account of the Last Supper, we read that when Jesus took the cup, he gave thanks, he offered it to his disciples saying, this is my blood of the covenant. Okay, remember those words. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, Jesus is talking about the new covenant here, to be instituted in his body and in his blood. And I guarantee when the disciples heard these words, they would have immediately thought of Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, where Moses was establishing the old covenant between God and the Israelites, and he used the exact same phrase, that is, the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. This is what Moses said. Exodus 24, verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, this is a simple point, point one. Jesus was consciously echoing the words of Moses when he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. Okay, the language is the language of sacrifice. All right? I don't think you're going to get any argument from any Christians of any denomination nope. uh, on that particular point. Maybe on the ones to come, though. <laughs> this now, is, we're building to something. Now we're moving uh, you know, out into the outer realms a little bit more. Okay, point number two. Notice that as soon as Jesus speaks these words, this is my body, this is my blood, this is my blood of the covenant, he issues the commandment for the disciples to do this in remembrance of me, or do this as a memorial of me. Now, these words, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me, these words occur in every one of the five narratives we have in the New Testament relating the institution of the Lord's Supper. Matthew's narrative, Mark, Luke, John, and also St. Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 11. He, he, he uses the same words, do this in remembrance of me. The Greek word that is translated do here is the common verb poieo, and it occurs 568 times in the New Testament, and it means to do to perform, to make. Jesus is saying, do this, perform this, repeat this, okay? That's what it means. Except, 
and this is a big except, it turns out that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and this is the Greek translation that was in existence at the time and was used. We know this from the New Testament writings, which every time they quote the Old Testament in Greek, they quote from the Septuagint. Okay, it turns out that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, whenever the, the verb poieo occurs in the context of making a sacrifice, it means to offer, as in to offer sacrifice, rather than simply to do. And I want to give a couple of examples. We see this in Exodus 29, verses 38 and 39, where the priests of Israel are being commanded to make the morning and evening sacrifices, which they presented every day. In this context, this is what we read in the Greek Old Testament. One lamb you shall do in the morning, and the other lamb you shall do in the evening. And by the way, it's the same thing in the Hebrew. The word that is used is the word for to do. Okay? We see the same thing in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7, where the text says, quote, approach the altar and do your, your sin offering and your burnt offering, and it will atone for you. And again, you, you read that. Everybody knows that the way to translate it is, is um, offer, you know, to, to offer your sin offering and your burnt. But the word is do. Another one would be Psalm 66, verse 15, which reads, I will do to thee burnt offerings of fatlings with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. In all of these contexts, do means offer, as in offer sacrifice. And so when Jesus says, my paraphrase, when Jesus says, this is my body offered up in sacrifice for you, this is my blood of the covenant poured out in sacrifice for you, do this in memory of me, or do this in remembrance of me. The evidence suggests that Jesus is saying, offer this in remembrance of me. So again, it's sacrificial language. And again, a lot of Christians from various denominations are still tracking and saying that's not a big deal because we know that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is really what's going to replace all of this. Um, yeah. So this meal is just him preparing them for what's going to happen here later on. But there's more, Ken. There's well, also, more. except that except that he's giving them a commandment of something to continue doing. St. Paul says, do this until Christ returns, you know, that yeah. we, we proclaim his death until he comes again. So, yeah, you know, it, it's true that w w we would have seen this as simply what happens at the cross. But the fact that he's saying, do this, I wouldn't be able to hold on to the idea that this was a sacrificial reference after Jesus' death, ongoing, maybe yeah, up until— Yeah, and this is, again, because you're, the Baptist services that you yeah. led and the services that I participated in in the Wesleyan-Arminian holiness tradition, there was no sacrifice at the center of our Christian worship. Um, the no. center of our Christian worship was an edifying talk that uh, encouraged us to grow closer to Christ, You know, culminating in a— invitation to turn our lives over to God. Yeah, present it your, was not present yourselves yeah. as living sacrifices. Yeah. Bread yeah. and wine were not the highlight no, of every worship service. No, no, no. But yeah, okay, we're going to go on point 3. The sacrificial overtones become even stronger at this point when we look at the word that is translated in remembrance or better really as a memorial. Um do this as a as a memorial of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, the Greek word here again 
that occurs here and that occurs in every one of the Lord's Supper institution narratives is the Greek word anamnesis, anamnesis, and it means a remembrance or a memorial, okay? Except, okay, it, it does mean remember, all right? But, but here is, again, another incredibly important exception. This word occurs five times in the Greek Old Testament. Matt, four of those five times, it occurs in the context of sacrifice. Okay, five times in the Old Testament, four of the five in the context of sacrifice. And in each of these occurrences, it refers to a memorial sacrifice. In, Le- in Leviticus 24, verse 7, we read, And you shall put frankincense with each row. It's referring to the bread of the presence, by the way. You shall put frankincense with each row that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion to be offered by fire to the Lord. Okay? It's referring to an anamnesis is a memorial offering. It's talking about a sacrifice. Same thing in Numbers 10, verse 10, where we read, On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall serve you for remembrance before your God. I am the Lord. <laughs> Referring again to a memorial offering, a memorial sacrifice. And so let me add this up. When Jesus says, here's my body offered in sacrifice, here's my blood offered in sacrifice, do this as a memorial of me. The evidence is strong, combining the use of the word do and the use of the word anamnesis. The evidence is strong that Jesus is saying, offer this bread and this wine from now on as a memorial sacrifice. And backing up to what we read in the very first part of this, the evidence is strong that that's exactly how Ignatius and Clement and everybody else, the Didache, took these instructions to mean. That's that's what they took it to mean, was to offer this as a memorial sacrifice. That's what the the earliest Christian texts outside the New Testament tell us. Saying it's the fulfillment of Malachi. This is the interpretation that they did. Yeah. 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 And, and but there's one more because all this brings us to bread and wine, just the issue of bread and wine, because it was common in the Old Testament for the Jews to offer up sacrifices of fine flour and wine, wine offerings, libations poured out before the Lord, grain, fine flour. Okay, in other words, bread and wine, in one form or another, were pretty common sacrificial elements in the Old Testament, in both the tabernacle and in the temple. But uh, it becomes even more powerful when we think about that mysterious, strange fellow named Melchizedek, that priest of God Most High, who met Abraham as he was returning from war. The letter to the Hebrews tells us, in no uncertain terms, that Jesus' own priesthood was a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. You remember that phrase, we prayed in Mass. A priesthood in the order of Melchizedek rather than in the order of the the Levitical priests. And so I asked the question, what was it that Melchizedek offered as sacrifice to God Most High and then came and shared with Abraham? It would be the bread and the wine. (laughs) That would be, yeah, it was the bread and the wine. Yeah, You know, know, it's interesting. And again, the Melchizedek stuff and most of the high priestly stuff that I read in the book of Hebrews, because there was no sacrificial... Mm -hmm element to our worship, no concrete sacrificial element to the evangelical worship I participated in, I just sort of glossed over as a way of Jesus saying that, you know, he stood before us 
as the offering on the cross and and then we're covered. But then when I went to mass for the first time or two, and I was like, why are they talking about this guy, Mel- Melchizedek in the mass? He gets like two yeah. lines in all of scripture um, because I didn't understand the whole picture uh, of all, all this. Okay. Well then, pi- okay. Piling these elements together. This is, this was step three for me in my own journey. It's not simply that the last supper was a sacrificial meal itself celebrated during the Passover meal. It turns out that the institution of the Eucharist appears as well to be the institution of a memorial sacrifice, just like the annual Passover celebration of the Jews. In other words, the Passover celebration year by year by year was the type. It was the shadow and its fulfillment, the you know, Holy Spirit charged new covenant fulfillment is the Eucharist. And it's presented as a sacrificial meal, a memorial sacrifice. Do this, offer this in memory of me. And this happens, well, as you just mentioned, this happens to be precisely how the early church understood it. As historian J.N.D. Kelly writes in his classic Early Christian Doctrines, just hear these words again in the light of what we've just looked at. J.N.D. Kelly, it was natural for early Christians to think of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. It was natural. The fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy demanded a solemn Christian offering, and the rite itself was wrapped in the sacrificial atmosphere with which our Lord invested the Last Supper. Is this wrapped in the sacrificial atmosphere with which our Lord invested the Last Supper? The words of institution, do this, tuta poeta in the Greek, must have been charged with sacrificial overtones for second century ears. It was just charged with sacrificial. In fact, he refers to Justin Martyr, who understood these words to mean offer this. So Justin Martyr actually mentioned this in one place, that tuta poeta, do this, meant offer this. Continuing to read from J.N.D. Kelly, the bread and the wine, moreover, are offered for a memorial of the passion, a phrase which, in view of his identification of them, that is the bread and the wine, excuse me, with the Lord's body and blood implies much more than an act of spiritual recollection. And there are so many more elements of this. You know, the the idea that uh, this is offered in remembrance of something that is actually about to happen, uh, right? Um, (laughs) Why would you remember something that hasn't happened yet? Well, isn't that what happened in the Passover? You're remembering your deliverance when it actually is going to be happening here in just a little bit. Uh, you've got that, but you've also got other elements, um, you know, to reflect mm-hmm. upon the way that the words work here. You're talking about anomnesis, which is the, um, you know, this this remembrance, yeah. this memorial sacrifice. Uh, that's the same root word for amnesia, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which is like, do not forget, right? Mm-hmm. Do not have amnesia about this. <laughs> this yeah, is yeah, that's something right. that that's right. you never forget this. Okay. Um, and oh, sorry. It, there, there's just so much in yeah, this. Yeah, I know. It, uh, especially when you start taking apart the words and realizing the context uh, in the Old Testament and how they're used. It's wild. And it was invisible to me. Yeah. Not because I wanted to ignore it, but because I just didn't have a context for understanding it. Okay, let's hit the objection. Because one of the primary, there are a couple, but one of the primary ob- objections that Protestants make to the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist as a sacrifice goes like this. The New Testament, Matt, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews makes it so very, very clear 
that our Lord was sacrificed once, and that his one sacrifice on the cross brought about full and complete redemption. And all Catholics would agree with that. Didn't by Jesus the way. say it is finished when he was on the cross? Catholics would agree. Okay. Catholics would all absolutely right. agree. But let me press it a little bit further because Protestants are this way. Okay, look, because of this, though, in Protestant way of thinking, which I understand thoroughly from my own past, the very idea that Jesus was instituting at the Last Supper a memorial sacrifice in which somehow bread and wine would become the body and blood of Christ and then would be offered up in there, offered up again and again and again to the Father seems like a flat out contradiction of Christ's one perfect sacrifice. That's that's the way it's usually lined up and portrayed, okay? Now, there is so much that could be said about this, but I want to hone down on two main points. The the first is the point that you just made because you you couldn't withhold yourself because you were so excited. You were like a, you know, a, you know, a kid in a candy store. You were like yeah. Jimmy Swaggart preaching, you know, you just had to jump out and say, I'm it. more like a kid okay, in a, well, like a like a kid in a Lego okay. store more like. And the first point is this. It's true. As you just said, it's true that our Lord was sacrificed one time to take away the sins of the world. You read through the letter to the Hebrews, and I wish we had time to read a lot of it, but but I know that we don't today. If you read through the letter to the Hebrews, especially chapter 9, it describes in great detail how Jesus, our true high priest, suffered, offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, ascended into heaven, into the true tabernacle of heaven, of, of which the temple and the tabernacle on earth were nothing but a picture and a shadow there to present his the sacrifice of, of his life, his own blood, once for all, like the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. This is all true. And here's the thing. It's Christ's one sacrifice that forms the very basis of the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist as a sacrament, which, which leads me to my second point, the, the one that I w- want to elaborate on a little bit and us to focus on, because this one really hit me when I first saw it as a key. The Eucharist is held in the Catholic world by Catholics to be a sacrament. And the very nature of a sacrament is that it takes what Jesus accomplished by his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, and it applies it in time. This is what a sacrament does. It takes what Jesus accomplished, the graces that Jesus made available by his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, yes, ascending into heaven and presenting it to the Father, and it makes it present. It makes it effective. It applies it in time. And I want to give a couple of illustrations of this. Think about baptism as an example. The prophet Ezekiel, we read it a million times when we were talking about sola fide. Ezekiel chapter 36 he said that when the new covenant came, when the new covenant was instituted, God would wash his people clean. He would cleanse them from all their impurities. He would take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. He would put his spirit within them. He would regenerate them, put his spirit in them and cause them to walk in his ways. Well, the grace to make this a reality, it is a grace that flows from our Lord's once for all sacrifice on the cross. There's no doubt about that. So I want to emphasize that. We agree. But it is applied, this grace is applied in baptism. And I I think about Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Matt. Okay, think about the crowds in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire packed into Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up, he preaches, the crowds are cut to the heart, and they cry out, what must we do? And And I'm quoting here, he says, you come forward 
and uh, pray and accept Jesus Christ uh, as your personal well, no, Lord. No, that's true. He didn't say that. Okay, but the point I want to make... Uh, maybe it says that in my okay, version. But the point here. I want to make is this. When they say, what must we do? He doesn't say to them, no worries. You were washed clean. You were regenerated. You were given the gift of the Holy Spirit at the moment that Jesus ascended to the Father, you know, as though it was done then. No, he says, in the present, now, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. My point is that, that the new covenant grace was one in the suffering, death, resurrection of Christ, but it's applied in real time. In this case, 50 days after the resurrection, it's being applied in real time. And the same is true of the sacrament of reconciliation. This is what sacraments do, in other words. This is the very nature of sacraments. The prophet Jeremiah said that when the new covenant was instituted, God would forgive the sins of his people. And the grace of forgiveness is a grace. It is a grace that flows from our Lord's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. But again, forgiveness is a grace that is applied in time. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, listen to what John writes. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I am writing to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, Matt, the thing I want to emphasize is notice he doesn't say to them, if you sin, don't worry, you were forgiven the instant Jesus ascended into heaven to present his blood in the true altar, you know, or in the true tabernacle of heaven. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. And we can confess our sins, and he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins, and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, John talks about how we can receive forgiveness in real time because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. In fact, I believe personally that this is what the author of Hebrews is saying when he describes Jesus, our high priest, in Hebrews 7, verse 25, as ever living to make intercession for us. When he says, Jesus in heaven at the right hand of the Father lives forever to make intercession for us. I don't, I don't think he simply means he's praying for us. He lives to intercede for us because the graces which he obtained by his suffering, death, and resurrection, his once-for-all sacrifice, those graces are being doled out. They're being dished out in time over the over the last 2000 years they're being applied and this is how catholics look this was a real key to me coming to see that this is how catholics look at the sacrament of the eucharist it's not about christ being sacrificed again and again and again it's not about a new sacrifice or a different sacrifice it's about a sacrament meaning it's about the once for all sacrifice of our lord on the cross being made present and applied to us. It's about the graces being applied in real time. Are you picking up what I'm laying down here? I'm picking up what you're laying down, and it helps make sense of a whole bunch of other things, like some of the mysterious language uh, in the book of Revelation about why is there a lamb that looks like it's been slain up there in heaven? And uh, 
Yeah. You know, a whole bunch of other things. And the, the fact of the matter is I'm, I've been holding my tongue, Ken, because I don't think I can say anything more about, you know, Catholics not re-sacrificing Jesus mm-hmm. and, and what we actually believe about all this without completely spoiling next week's episode. So I got to hold my tongue. Yeah, because it, because, because I know where you're going next time. start talking about Christ's body and blood being re-presented and applied, then we're dealing with the real presence. Then we got that word then we're dealing with the real there. presence. But didn't you have a... And Did you gotta, have a book gotta, you wanted to share though? What you could do in closing? Oh yeah. Um, but before we uh, before we let people go, um, we've been talking a lot about Malachi and uh, the Eucharist being foretold in Malachi. And I do want to recommend my buddy Mike Aquilina has got a book. It's called "The Eucharist Foretold: The Lost Prophecy of Malachi." It's from Emmaus Road Publishing, and I even wrote a little a little thingy in the front of it just to you mean, show you. You mean how with it. your pen? It's so you good wrote to actually. There, or it's, or it's, no, I, I, I typed okay. up a little recommendation. They included it. And it's so good, actually, that my co-host, Anna Mitchell, on the Sunrise Morning Show wrote a blurb that went on the back. So both of, both of us recommended it. It's really, really, really good and really helps unpack this reference in Malachi that has been popping up uh, actually yeah. about oh, the past three or four weeks in this series. But uh, are you saying that you wrote a blurb so. and the blurb was so good that someone else wrote a blurb of your blurb to express? That would be very <laughs> That would be very what? That would be very that- meta. That would be self-aggrandizing, you know, like, and that's not what this show's about. It would be, um, and self-actualizing. But perhaps. you know what? If you're mentioning, um, as long as you're mentioning Mike Aquilina, here's another one. Oh, Ken's going to be Ken's going to get some show no, and tell. Say, here. uh, here's a great so what, book. What it's called. Oh, the Father, yeah, the really original. Good. Although I've been quoting from the I've been quoting from J and D Kelly, and one of the reasons I quote from J and D Kelly is because he wasn't Catholic. He, he, he was Anglican, right. but a great, great historian, great scholar. Um, anyway, those are the steps that wraps up uh, what I've got to say here about kind of summarizing um, the case that was coming to me for for accepting the Catholic teaching uh, that the Eucharist needs to be conceived in sacrificial terms. And then next week we'll focus on summing up all the steps and the reasons for taking it uh, for, for believing in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And that is going to be a fun one because there's a lot to be said about that. But in the meantime, thank you for uh, tracking with this episode of On the Journey. And uh, if you want more uh, of this or other things, uh, perhaps you want uh, to hear some stories of other people who have made these journeys, uh, head on over to chnetwork.org. Again, that's chnetwork.org to find the Coming Home Network. And if you click on Connect, mm-hmm. uh, you can get into our online community and find the discussion that we have about these episodes in there with our membership, um, which is comprised mostly of people who are either interested in the Catholic faith or um, who have become Catholic from a whole bunch of different backgrounds. So chnetwork.org. Join us. Come visit us. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thanks again, okay, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>